So in 2015, Elspeth and I were on the Greek island of Lesbos for a holiday, and uh, you could see Turkey easily just across the sea. Uh, any of you who've been there will, will know that. Lovely island, but if you walked along the coast that faced to Turkey, it was quite, um, I don't know, it was quite affecting because of all the stuff washed up on the seashore there. So you'd see people's handbags you know, packed full, or people's luggage like this, packed full, just washed up on the seashore, because people were making that dangerous journey uh, from Syria, Afghanistan, all kinds of places, trying to come to safety. And uh, particularly uh, the next slide, you saw these washed up boats, um, little children's toys in there, you probably can't see, but there's a little train, there's a, a children's shoe, it kind of catches your heart to see how desperate people would be to flee something awful, to get to a better place, to get to a place of safety. Millions of people each year find themselves in a place of distress, of war, of conflict, of suffering, anguish, and they are displaced by war and persecution. They make journeys they did not want to make over land and sea, and wouldn't you in the same situation? Even today, we've heard news of more people being drowned trying to cross from Tunisia to uh, Italy. And then we know about the boats across the channel. You know, even if you take a boat, a plane, a car, like on the next slide, a ferry, um, or maybe you need therapy to move on from a difficult place in your life, and that can be very, very useful. I would still suggest to you that you need one other form of transport, and that is the transport provided by the biblical pattern of lament or lamenting. Because I believe lamenting transports us into God's future for us. And like for many migrants, the circumstances that drive us to start on a journey of lamenting can be hideous, so awful that no matter how dangerous the journey, we will attempt it. But sometimes we are put off by how dangerous the journey is. But I want to encourage us through this talk to make this journey. It's the second of three talks about the biblical habit of lamenting. I highly recommend Matt Irwin's exceptional talk from last week. Um, and my emphasis is that lament, lamenting is a type of speech that transports us into God's future. But you know there's a danger where too polite, too nice, too nice, too compliant to actually make this journey. And I hope to show you not to make those mistakes. Now I actually believe we're very familiar with lament in our culture. Lots of popular music is in the form of lament. I mean at Christmas you'd think Christmas number ones, they would be um, you know, really upbeat. But remarkably often they're not. I was really amazed one year when Mad World got number one in the charts at Christmas, for the Christmas number one. Mud's lonely this Christmas, right? That's, that's a breakup song, okay? Um, Wham's Last Christmas, another breakup song. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day you gave it away, this year to save me from tears. It's a song of lament, yes? Um, breakup songs are hugely popular the year round. <laughs> Right, the longest running number one of 2023. We've only had, what, 12 weeks of 2023. For 10 weeks, the number one song was what? Miley Cyrus singing Flowers, It's a Breakup Song, right? Lament is 
completely through popular music. It would be easier to list artists who have not recorded a breakup song than to list artists who have. Um, so there are political protest songs, there are Negro spirituals, these are all laments. Every culture develops some form of lament, some form of using words to process and navigate unwanted experiences and unpleasant emotions. But some forms of lament are better than others, and I think the scripture offers us a really great form of lament. So we have Psalm 17, I'm going to read it and then we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. So first of all, David talks to God and he tells God straight out, my protest is just. Right? My cause is just. Listen to him. A prayer of David, verse 1. Hear me, Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not arise from deceitful lips. And then David, from verse 2, he's saying, God, God, you've got to look and see that I am blameless in my intentions, in my speech, in my actions. And so he sets this out. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. How? Through what your lips have commanded. In other words, through the Old Testament law, which was his Bible. Verse 5, my steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. He's saying, I'm righteous, I am just, I'm blameless. And then next, from verse 6, knowing that God has made a covenant with us, David makes demands that God must act. Like saying to God, I want 30 at the Connect Cafe. Like, like saying to God, these people owe me money. God, would you move them to pay the money that they owe me, that Craig shared about, right? He says, verse 6, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand all those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. And then David describes his complaint about his enemies. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They've tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They're like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. The psalm doesn't tell us the exact nature of the enemies that David is uh, Facing at this time, we can look at the story of David in the Old Testament, but we can't exactly place where this psalm fits. But that's one of the kind of wonderful things about the psalms. It sets something out which we can each fit to our own life circumstances. Thank God for that. And then next from verse 13, David demands God's judgment on these enemies. This gets really quite intense here, look. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down with your sword. Rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. It's quite vicious, isn't it? And then to close, David reminds himself of his final hope, his vindication by God. And there's even, I would suggest for us, reading it with New Testament eyes, a hint of the resurrection in verse 15. As for me, David finishes, I shall be vindicated. 
I shall see your face. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. It's looking forward to the resurrection. So let's look at some of the moves of, the, of lament that we find here. I've got five to get through, see how we go. Um, and I haven't thought of five easy ways to remember them, so Lord, sorry. So first is this, lament transports us into God's future by authorizing us to complain to the Lord instead of grumbling, okay? So just, I think we know this anyway, but just to rehearse this, complaining to a God is allowed, right? Psalm 142 reads this, I cry aloud to the Lord, I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy, almost the same as the start of 17. He says, I pour out my complaint, I pour out before him my complaint. We are, the Psalms license us to complain to God. Isn't that great to hear? You know, there are certain cultures, I think in Russia today, you better not complain. Yep, there, is the, there are places where you better not complain. I think if you're a woman in Iran today, you better not complain, right? But if you're a Christian in the kingdom of God, you better complain, right? You are authorized, you are licensed to complain. Um, Satan's counterfeit version of lament is grumbling, right? And uh, we, we can easily get into grumbling. Grumbling is when we do not address the complaint to God, but against people. Grumbling is the shape that prayer takes when we believe that someone other than God is in charge of our life. It's the language of unbelief and self-pity, of those who don't think they've got God's attention. But when you lament, you know you've got God's attention, or at least you're going to tell God, I, you should give me your attention. You're in covenant relationship with me. You've told me that you love me. And, and we come to God with that confidence. Now, I know there can be times when it's difficult to do that, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, just as an aside here, that lament is a cure for mental illness. If we are, have mental illness, there are other things that need to happen, yeah? So I'm not trying to proclaim this as an answer to that. But um, I would suggest that, um, um, you know, it can be appropriate for us to complain to an organization, to bring a grievance to a spouse. Sometimes in marriage, we need to tell a spouse about a grievance that we have. But it's not right to put that organization or our spouse under the responsibility for making me happy. Only God is the one who can make us happy. He says in Psalm 17, doesn't he, that God satisfies him. Only God can satisfy you. Your spouse will never be able to do that completely. Your spouse will be wonderful. Your employer might be wonderful. Your government might be wonderful. But none of them can truly satisfy you. That is why we complain to God rather than just grumbling. Because grumbling is not the language of God's kingdom. So what do we do with our negative emotions? Well, we complain to God. We are licensed to do that. We call on God. We tell him how just our cause is, how angry we are, how fed up we are. And you let it out with everything you have got. And there are times when you need to do that over and over. Sometimes I remember when a couple of colleagues got hired after me in my second full-time job for a big multinational electronics company. And they were hired after me, then got promoted before me, and it took me several days of anger and irritation to get over it, okay? But sometimes it can take weeks or months. Sometimes it can be an hour. Whatever to, however long it takes, let lament play out its role and transport you into God's future for you. So I, I, I think sometimes we don't complain to God because Satan's tricked us into thinking that we have to be very, very polite with God. 
but I want to tell you that's not true. You know, with your, if you have children, sometimes they're wild in a tantrum and beside themselves. If you, you, children get like that sometimes, don't they? And you pick them up and you embrace them if they're very small. Sometimes they're teenagers and you maybe can't do that. Um, and they'll kick and scream and whatever, but you're big enough to take it, okay? But you can't have them kick and scream another child, yeah? Agreed? So that's why we complain to God. God is big enough to cope with you, screaming and shouting and kicking and, dare I say it, swearing and cursing and whatever. Whatever you need to do to get it out there to God. Because he doesn't want us. You know, in films and movies, they constantly they sweep everything off the, sh- the, uh, the mantelpiece or the desk, don't they, when they get angry. That's not a godly way of handling our anger. We need to come and bring our anguish to God to tell him how it is. So um, an American writer I, I, like, I liked, Ellen Davis, she says the problem with these flight notions of prayer is that we cannot have an intimate relationship with someone to whom we cannot speak honestly. That is, someone to whom we cannot show our ugly side or, who, or those large clay feet of ours. Don't you have large clay feet? Don't you put your foot in it? Don't you make a mess of relationships and stuff? And don't you need to tell God about that? Because he knows anyway. Yeah, he knows what we're feeling. She goes on, the Psalms are a... She's an American, so you put it in that context. The Psalms are a kind of First Amendment for the faithful. They guarantee us complete freedom of speech before God. And then something no secular constitution would ever do. They give us a detailed model of how to exercise that freedom, even up to its dangerous limits, to the very brink of rebellion. She writes very strongly, but I think it's... uh, Help for us. Let's stop being polite before God or we get stuck. Number two, um, lament transports us into God's future by giving us space to consider whether we are guilty or innocent. So if you look at the different Psalms of lament in the Bible, some of them, it's, oh God, have mercy on me, blah, blah, blah. And then like Psalm 17 is, look God, I've behaved properly. My intentions have been good. My speech has been good. My actions have been good. Did you hear that in the Psalm? And I think when we go through the process of lamenting, it gives us space to kind of ask that question. Am I, am I guilty or am I innocent? You see, can anyone think of a breakup song where the artist admitted that they had acted badly? I'm not sure I can. There probably is one. I mean, Alanis Morissette could be, because, I mean, she's, her songs are really miserable, aren't they? <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, that song, This Grudge, I mean, really, a song about grudges. Wow, you've really dived somewhere deep there, haven't you? I I remember autumn 2020 in my workplace, something had gone wrong. Nobody else was bothered about it, but I was. I wanted people to learn a lesson. But the next day, I discovered that the error was my own. And there I was struck, because here I was, the Christian in this charity, making a fuss about who had made an error, as if I wanted to bring a blame culture into that workplace. I mean, why would I want to do that, you stupid... You know? (laughs) Do, do, Do you get it? Have you ever been in that place? Maybe in your marriage, you start to introduce the blame, and you're thinking, why? 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 We're we're people of the kingdom of grace. Why would I do this? The next day I was journaling and I I recorded, I've looked it up, I journaled my my repentance, I lamented how quickly I assume others are at fault and and are incompetent, whereas I'm incompetent and never make a mistake. That's a very, very foolish assumption. 
It's a mistaken assumption. And lamenting invites us to explore that space. Am I the bad guy in this? Um, so, and, and, you know, when you lash out at God, sometimes that's the revelation that comes to you. That's what happens in the Psalms. You see that again and again. David or the other psalmists make that move. And it's humiliating to admit to faults, but it is essential to move into God's future. So if we can finally admit our guilt, the possibility of uh, forgiveness opens up. But take care, because there are some of us who always blame ourselves. And the reason we do that is because we've been conditioned. Maybe you've been what's called gaslighted. Yeah? You've had somebody who, maybe a spouse, a parent, a boss, who's constantly down, down, uh, pulled you down, constantly told you you were at fault, constantly made you doubt yourself, constantly made, it, made you think it's your fault, even though they were hitting you, that it was your fault that you got hit. That's being gaslighted. And I remember in my last church, a man came and joined the church. He was going through a messy divorce, never met the wife, which I realized later, as I say, was a very bad mistake. He had very little money. They were battling a divorce in court. CAFCAS was involved, you know, the Children and Family Court Advisory and Support Service. They have a lot of power, those people. And um, I helped him write some appeals so that he would get some access to his children, which I thought seemed very compassionate. But actually, as I got to know him more, I began to think and be convinced that he'd been gaslighting his wife. He'd been sucking me into his view of his wife and that he was the bad guy in the situation. And I learned a lesson then, oh my goodness, you should really listen to both sides of the story before you step in, you know? Oh my goodness. There's a uh, proverb, Proverbs 18, 17 says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. And I thought, wow, there's a lesson there. A lesson uh, I'm sure I still make mistakes about, but it's so important to hear both sides of the story. Oh, Lord. So, uh, you know, just what I, what I want to say, Psalm 17, it, it, it makes it legitimate to declare we are blameless. I think as Christians we can think, oh, we've got to acknowledge sin all the time. No, there are times when you need to declare you're blameless. That lamenting gives an avenue for people who've been gaslighted to come away from that place of feeling that they're useless, they're no good, that they're at fault, they kind of don't get anything. Because it says, hey, here's a way of speaking about yourself that says, no, I, 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 my intentions were good. I spoke rightly. You hearing me? Some of you maybe have been gaslighted in life. Here's a way for you to speak that God's licensing you to declare your blamelessness. Lament provides transport for both victims and culprits. Number three, whoa, come on, Andrew. Ah, transports us into God's future by saving us from taking vengeance and revealing God as the judge. Uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to skip this section. I find, just to say, I find it very difficult to pray the kind of prayer in here and some of the other Psalms, it's even worse. I mean, let their belly bellies of pregnant women be torn open, you get in one of the Psalms. I mean, it's really, really severe. I guess if I'd had a daughter who'd been kidnapped, raped, and murdered, I might think I, could, I, would, I would pray like that. But so far, I guess nothing so awful has happened to me, and I find myself more inclined to pray like Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Through gritted teeth, probably, but 
I found it very hard to pray the imprecations, the curse, curses of, of the Psalms. But they're there because I think there probably are situations in life where we need to say something that severe to God. But the wonderful thing about it, of course, is means that I don't go and do that vengeance. I'm placing the person in the hands of God, saying, God, I give them over to you as the judge of all the earth. Yeah, you're hearing that? And that's where it's different to just, I'm going to go and get them. Um, Incidentally, I think if someone has committed a crime against you, you should go and report it to the police and you should give a witness statement because otherwise they'll go and do the same to other people. I think Psalms are talking about those crimes which are below the level of police crimes or maybe there's no opportunity. Like people who've suffered the violence in the war in Ukraine, maybe they'll never get their time in court, but they can give, them, give this to God and ask, commit the uh, justice to God. So number four, laments transport us into God's future by moving us from passivity to gutsy petitions. I think sometimes when we've talked about lament in the Christian church, it's always been about being honest and telling God how awful things are. But actually, when you read the laments in the Bible, it moves to bold petition. It moves to saying, God, I want 30 people to be at the Connect Cafe. Right? That, 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 that's where it comes to. And I think lament makes us very bold before God. Um, lamenting doesn't require Christian piety does not require passivity and resignation a miserable acceptance of things as they are lamenting shows us that the world as it is is not how God wants it and he wants us stirred up in our spirit to say I'm not happy with this God the civil rights movement in the states or women's, you know, women getting the vote these things happen because people said I'm not happy how it is and, uh, and I think that's a Christian um, impulse. So w- w- you see how assertive David is in verse 1, 6, 13 of, of Psalm 17. Hear me, my Lord. My plea is just listen to my cries. Very bold. You don't get any pleases and thank yous in these Psalms. But verse 6, I call on you, my God. You will answer me. He's really bold on the basis of the covenant. Okay, you've made a covenant with me. You've got to listen to me. You've made a covenant to protect me, to provide for me. And therefore, you get really bold. Or verse 13, rise up, Lord, confront them, bring down my enemies. It's very, very bold. You know, God our Father loves submission, but he hates resignation. Right? Resignation is Satan's counterfeit version of godly submission. And I believe lament transports us out of resignation. And the cure for that is is an old word which you might not have come across called importunity. To be importunate is to be persistent and insistent in making requests, so insistent that it's rude, it's embarrassing. Jesus told parables about this. There are accounts in the Gospels of people really pressing into Jesus. You know, the the woman um, who who was a Gentile saying, you know, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. She, she gets right in Jesus' face. There's something about importunity that is godly. The Scottish, Scottish Congregationist preacher, P.T. Forsyth, who writes beautifully about prayer, I think his book's called The Soul of Prayer, his, his, the first church he pastored was in Bradford, right? And he wrote this, religion applauds submission, but true faith loves importunity, right? Those who will really cry out to God. Matt reminded us last week that Israel, the word Israel, means God wrestler. When we lament, we wrestle with God. We question his plans and wisdom. We demand that he act differently. 
if you've ever studied the management of change, you'll have learned that one of the biggest drivers of change is discontent with how things are now. Right? That, that's what drives us to make the difficult journey to a different place. And God has known that all along, and, and he lets things get bad because he wants us to get so discontented that we re- will rebel against how things are and then initiate history with our petitions from him. It's not that he doesn't want to give us those things, but that he wants us to ask for them so that when we get them, we know the source, we know where they came from. So um, in a previous... Oh, my goodness, the clock's always against me. In my... In my previous church, I had a situation where things had been quite difficult. And, um, you know, when you're a leader, you have a certain trust capital you build up with people through doing things well. And sometimes you have to spend all that trust capital with a difficult situation. And that's what happened. And then the following year, in 2013, we'd resolved it was time to buy a building because we were renting a space for the food bank, another space for a food bank in another part of the borough for the food bank to be open in a different geographical location. We rented a space to worship on Sunday. We rented office space. We had a small gospel hall building we owned where we did youth work and prayer meetings. There were six buildings we were managing. It was so complicated managing it all, and we just decided now is the time. And actually, I realized we'd had several kind of half-hearted efforts at getting a building, but I felt God say, now is the time. You, you, this is something you should go for. But because of what had happened the year before, and I'd, I had... My leadership wasn't in a very good place in the church. And I would say I was innocent in that. But that's another story I won't talk about. Um, But I started saying to God, we we found this building and was led to this building. We were negotiating to lease the building for about £40,000 a year, uh, an old supermarket building right on the main shopping street. And... um, But as we were negotiating for this, I just felt, I started asking God, I felt inspired one day, God, I want you to vindicate me in this situation, so I want to ask you to give us the freehold for this building. Now, if you know anything about retail property, they're all owned by real estate investment trusts. This was owned by about, it was one of two and a half thousand properties owned by a real estate investment trust. Anyway, we we went to our agent who was negotiating, and I said, I want you to ask for the freehold. And he said, you'll never get it. And I said, well, we're Christians, and we're asking God. So we want you to ask for it. And uh, and I was praying to God, and it was 10,000 square feet. We'd looked at various other buildings, so I knew a bargain price would be like 800,000. So I started asking God, I want that building, and I want it for 800,000. I wanted to initiate history. I wanted to say, God, you've got to vindicate me. Then I started praying 750,000. Thought I was really, I thought I've knocked 50,000 off. Let's make it harder for God. <laughs> a bit like, you know, Elijah pouring water on the thing before asking fire, if you know your Old Testament story. I just wanted to make it really hard for God. And the agent came back to me and said, Well, it's good news and bad news, right? The good news is for you that this real estate investment trust, um, HSBC, has called in all the loans because the value of the all their properties is less than the value of all the loans. So they are going to all be sold. But the sales have been put in the hand of Colliers, a big international asset management company, and they'll be selling them off in bundles of 50 and 100 to other real estate investment trusts, so you won't get it. We said, we're Christians, we're praying. You ask. And then one day I was literally in the street where the building was. My phone pinged. There was an email, and it said... 
from the agent, our agent, saying, we're willing, they are willing to sell you the building. They want £495,000. <laughs> right? Yes. There are times when God uses, kind of will act with us, and we need to be bold. And lament brings us to a place of insistent demands of God. Makes me think of the story in Luke 18 where, um, from verse 35, it says, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He must have heard about Jesus. He must have heard of what Jesus did. Because listen what happens. He called out, Jesus, son of mercy, have mercy. Sorry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Isn't that a great bold prayer? That's the sort of gutsy petition that arises out of a place of lament. Verse 39, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. You see, the gutsy permissions of lament are rude. They're inappropriate. They're the sort of things that are not polite. Who are you to shout out at Jesus? Shut up. Right? People will tell you, Satan will tell you, shut up, you shouldn't pray like that. Dear friends, you should pray like that. Right? You should ask like Craig, let the, make these people pay their bill. You should pray for that. You should pray that bold prayer. I'm praying about our management agent, managing agent, the flats where we live. They're not very good, shall I say. I'm praying for deliverance from this managing agent, right? Praying for deliverance from their incompetence and their corruption, as I see it. Um, <laughs> we need to come with these bold prayers, and lament invites us to do that. Yes, um, as we just, uh, just coming to, I need to do number five, because it brings us round to a full stop. Is that okay? Can we just run over? The trouble is, I can't ask the guys down in Treehouse, can I? And they're the ones who get uh, stung by this. Ah, deep breath. The last phrase transports us. Lament transports us into God's future because it changes our view of God. <coughs> because the honest truth is I've made many other great prayers to God and they weren't answered like that building. Yep. And that's true for all of you as well, I'm sure. But you see in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, you know, I call on you, my God, you will answer me. Verse 7, show me the wonders of your great love. That's the thing you need most of all. I didn't need that building ultimately. What I needed was the great love of God in my life. Yep. We were praying for a lady who'd been made terminal at that time with pancreatic cancer. The hospital delivered things to her home to make it more comfortable when she died. She's still alive. She answered our prayer. I think I've told the story. At that time, I was praying for the building. I was praying for her healing. I said, God, if it's a choice, I'd like Anne to be healed and not get the building. He gave us both. Isn't that wonderful? But then I buried other people who died of their cancer. You know, this is... But I tell you this, even if I get cancer and die of it, the thing I need most of all is not healing, but his great love... Yep. And then keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. That's the most important thing, isn't it? I remember one day, Elspeth and I, on a date night, I was getting towards the end of the night, and I thought I'd freshen myself up, ready to make myself alluring and virile for bed. And I got the, <laughs> I got the cologne. I went for splashing the cologne in my armpit, and I missed, and I threw the cologne in my eyes. 
I was like, oh my goodness. So from this, you know, strapping, young, tall husband, I was in the bathroom whimpering, splashing cold water in my eye. But you know, the apple of your eye is just is the pupil of your eye. And, um, you know, God doesn't actually have a physical eye. He's obviously a supernatural, invisible being, okay? Um, but when somebody gets in your life, is attacking you, God says, it's like they've poked me in the eye. Do you understand? If you're under attack, God is not somewhere, you know, sunbathing. God feels it intensely. It's like he's been poked in his eye, dear friends. So, um, you know, that when God changes your circumstances, he changes your day. But when God changes your perspective, he changes your destiny. And that's the most important thing. And that's where lament will lead you, ultimately. Verse 15, as for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. I shall be satisfied. So then we realize getting the building or not, getting the healing or not, that's just secondary to this. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Praise God for that. So, um, I should wrap. Would you want to stand? We're going to break bread now. I guess the band should come up. You know, when we break bread, we're just letting Jesus come right into our life. We're saying, I want to be and I will be satisfied with you. I'm going to receive you right into my life. Um, let me be satisfied with the fullness, the fullness and maybe today some of you are going to make a shout like that man on the road to Jerusalem, the blind man. Remember hearing a fantastic talk at one of the stony Bible weeks. Some of you will never heard of it, but there's a movement of churches. We ran a Bible week at the Agricultural Centre in Stony for many years. There was this great talk about the shout that stopped God. Because when that man cried out, that blind man, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We read, Jesus stopped. Your shout can stop God. You can arrest his attention. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe as we break bread today, as you take the bread and take it down, you're going to utter a cry and say to God something that is on your heart and you're going to cry out to him to intervene for that situation. And yes, maybe he won't change that situation but his great love is going to come into you. I must hand off to, uh, to Ellie. and uh, Thank you for your patience, everybody.